Welcome to Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Pluger, Pardes alum. This week, Devarim. This week, Rabbi Meir Schweiger discusses Devarim. Rabbi Meir Schweiger is a senior faculty member at Pardes and also serves as the Pardes Mashkiach Ruchani, the spiritual guide for Pardes. And now, Rabbi Meir Schweiger. Thank you, Larry. This week's parsha is Parshat Varim. In previous podcasts, I have discussed the significance of the book of Dvarim. The book contains Moshe's parting words to the Jewish people when they are on the threshold of entering the land of Israel, just before Moshe's passing away. The book of Dvarim in rabbinic literature is known as Mishneh Torah, which is generally translated as the repetition of the Torah. But contrary to what we would think, Moshe does not summarize the Torah, and certainly not in a systematic way. There are huge chunks of the book of Leviticus, which have to do with the sacrifices and laws of ritual purity, which are not at all discussed in the book of Dvarim. Alternatively, of the approximately 100 mitzvot, commandments, which appear in the book of Dvarim, more than two-thirds are new laws which were not discussed in the other four books. So perhaps we should understand the idea of Mishnah Torah, not in the sense of repetition of the Torah, but perhaps as a kind of supplement to the Torah, or maybe an adaptation of the Torah. What Moshe is doing in the book of Dvarim is, in effect, giving the Jewish people the Torah that will prepare them for their entry into the land of Israel. Not surprisingly, the first thing which Moshe chooses to discuss in our parsha is the story of the spies. Forty years earlier, or perhaps to be more exact, 39 years earlier, the Jewish people were on the threshold of entering the land of Israel and sent spies, which led to a fatal decree that a whole generation would die in the desert. Moshe wants to impress upon the people what happened in that story so that history should not repeat itself. So that once again, after Moshe dies, the people will not hold themselves back from coming into the land of Israel, but will go on to actualize their destiny. Today, what I would like to do is something which I do regularly in my year program or other programs of Pardes, which is a careful reading of the text. And in our situation, it is a a comparison of the story of the spies as it appears in the book of Numbers in real time with the story of the spies that Moshe tells the new generation in our Parsha. And in fact, we will see that there are conflicting narratives. I have chosen seven points that illustrate significant differences between what is told in Numbers and how Moshe tells the people in our Parsha. When one encounters such a phenomenon, how do we deal with it? There is an approach in the academic world, in what is called the modern 
biblical critical way of reading the text to in effect relegate these differences simply to different narratives, different versions of the story, and to leave it at that. For a traditionalist, that approach is very, very problematic because one sees the Torah as being the Word of God and of being consciously redacted in a uniform way, and therefore that leads to an approach which on the one hand acknowledges the conflicting narratives, but on the other hand tries to understand each one in its context and perhaps to see how to somehow bring the two together to create a larger whole. And that is what I would like to do today, to see how, as I said in the title of this podcast, how do we navigate conflicting narratives and to somehow piece together what really happened in the story of the spies. So without any further ado, let's begin by examining the source sheet, which I've attached to the podcast. For those of you who uh, do not have the source sheet at hand, so I will make reference to the various psukim, and uh, at your leisure, I encourage you to go back and look at the sheet itself. So let's begin. The first issue which we have is who's, who was the one that initiated the idea of sending spies? When we look in Bamidbar, chapter 13, verse 2, Pasuk Bet, or we should really begin with Pasuk Aleph, where it says, And God commanded Moshe, saying, Send to you men, one man from each tribe, to go and spy out the land. And then when we look subsequently in verse 3, it says, And Moshe sent them according to the word of God, or literally on the mouth of God. Which means when I look at what happened in real time, God was the one who gave the directive to send the spies. If that's really so, then presumably sending spies was seen as actually a positive thing. Otherwise, why would God set them up, so to speak? And this is something which which quite a few traditional commentaries note, that it would be extremely difficult to make the assumption that God is setting up the Jewish people to fail. But then that, of course, raises the question as to why? Why send the spies? But before we deal with that question, if we look now at the parallel in our parsha, and here I started with Dvarim chapter 1 verse 19, Moshe is recounting how the Jewish people traveled from Sinai, they came to Kadesh Barnea, which is in the Negev in the south, and then Moshe says to them, you in effect are at the cusp of the land which God is giving you. Go, take possession of that land. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. And then in verse 22, we're told that the people then come to Moshe and they say to him, let us send forth spies to check out the land. And then in verse 23, it says, it was good in my eyes, the words or the matter that you said. So therefore, when I look at what it says in Bamidbar, it is God who initiates the idea of sending spies. 
When I look at our parsha, it is in fact the people who initiate it with the approval, with the validation of Moshe. In fact, never once does Moshe mention that the sending of the spies in any way is a directive from God. Well, this difference obviously has lots of ramifications. If I assume that it was God who said to send the spies, then I would assume a priori that that should be something which is very, very positive. If it's the people, then that actually can become the basis for a discussion. Should the people have sent spies? Should the people have taken that initiative? Or should the people have simply followed Moshe's leadership as directed by God according to whatever instructions they would be given? I would venture to say that the uh, overwhelming majority of traditional commentaries in trying to reconcile this contradiction essentially go with what appears in our parsha, which is that the initiative to send spies really began with the people. And that, in fact, Moshe validates their initiative. What appears in Bamidbar in real time is God subsequently giving a directive to the people. And, and this will lead us to the next point, perhaps redefining the purpose of that mission. I would like to say that the reason why in real time we don't mention the initiative of the people is because ultimately the framing of the sending of the spies is established by God. And everything else that follows is very much related to how that mission was framed. On the other hand, in our parsha, the reason why Moshe mentions the initiative being that of the people is perhaps because Moshe wants the people to take responsibility for their actions. Moshe does not even bring up God's relationship, God's connection to the sending of the spies, because Moshe doesn't want the people to in any way blame God for what happened in that incident, but to make them realize that perhaps from beginning to end, it was the people who are responsible for what happened and who have to learn from that. Perhaps let me also add that part of the reason why I brought up the background to the sending of the spies, and this is based on certain commentaries, is that when the Jews are on the cusp of the land of Israel, Moshe says to them, here you are, go take possession of the land. And when the people hear that, then they understand that perhaps they need to be much more proactive in what they're doing. And therefore, that's why the people saw this as being something which they need to rise up to the plate. And I might even add to that. Well, perhaps I won't add that. We'll get to that in one moment. And when Moshe therefore says, I, was, I saw that it was good what you asked for, perhaps Moshe also wants the people to be more proactive. And this might be even a response to what actually appeared in Numbers, in a story that came before the incident of the spies, when Moshe, in effect, says at the end of chapter 11 in Numbers that he is not able 
to lead the people alone, at which point God says to him, take 70 men who will now help you in the leadership of the people, which means that a process has already been set in motion of having delegating responsibility and having people take much more, being much more proactive in what's happening. Just as in our parsha, before Moshe talks about the spies, he talks about the system that was set up, ostensibly the judicial system, which actually appears for the first time in chapter 18 in Exodus, with Jethro, with Yitro, okay? Which might also be part of this idea that Moshe alone cannot lead the Jewish people. Moshe needs the people to start taking a much more proactive role in their government. Let's move on now to point number two. And clearly point number two will be related to what we just said. What in fact is the mission of the spies? And I'd like to begin with what appears by us in Deuteronomy. It says in chapter 1, verse 22, when the people requested it, we want them to dig out the land. They should tell us what path we should go up on and which cities we should come upon. Which means that when we look at what it says in our parsha, from the perspective of the people, the mission of the spies is very similar to what we would have today when spies are sent out with a very clear military purpose. In this case, to simply check out the lay of the land, perhaps the places that are the most vulnerable to conquer initially. And that is something which, once again, is very understandable and could be seen as very, very positive. In fact, we already have a precedent for this in chapter 21 in the book of Numbers, when the Jewish people go to fight a king, Og, the king of Bashan, that they send out spies to check it out before they engage in battle. Joshua, in chapter 2, sends spies to Jericho to check it out before the Jewish people begin the conquest of the land of Israel. Now let's look at what it says in Bamidbar, in the actual story. The word that's used in chapter 13, verse 2, is viaturu, which presumably is related to the word in modern Hebrew, tayar, which means a tourist. It means to check out. But now let's see what appears in verses 18, 19, and 20. On the one hand, what are they supposed to be checking out? Well, they're supposed to be checking out the inhabitants. Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they few? Are they many? They're supposed to be checking out, at the end of verse 19, the cities. Are they open cities? Are they fortresses? Now, all of these points clearly are important in terms of the military campaign. But there are additional things which they're told to check out. And that's the beginning of verse 19, and then verse 20. What about the land? Is it good? Is it bad? In verse 20, is it fat? Is it lean? Are there trees? Are there not? And then Moshe says at the end, and be strong and take some of the fruits of the land, presumably to come and show the people. Those additional requests are a little bit strange. Why is that relevant to the military campaign. Now, one way of taking it is that if Moshe is sure 
that the land actually is good, and the land is fat, and that there are trees, and there's abundance there, then having people hear that will be what we would call a morale booster. It would give them a greater incentive to go and fight. But there's another factor which comes up here, which appears in Bamidbar, and is also mentioned in our story, which is a little bit strange. And that is, how many spies are sent? And we know that God directs Moshe in the, in the book of Bamidbar to send one man per tribe, not just one man per tribe, but that man being a prince, that man being a person of stature, of significance. In fact, in Bamidbar, I didn't put it on my sheet, but we actually give a whole listing of who those people were with their names, which is evidently trying to really highlight their importance. And we all know that when you send spies, the most important element is secrecy. And in fact, in the book of Joshua, when Joshua sends the spies, he sends two spies. And not only does he send two spies, but it says explicitly he sends them cheresh, which means quietly. So that sending 12 spies, and also men of significance, generally spies are not your leadership. And unfortunately, they're people who theoretically you could see as dispensable even. So then why would you want to send 12 spies, which compromises the element of secrecy? Why would you want to send people who are significant? And Nachmanides offers a very interesting explanation in the Book of Numbers, where he says that the purpose of sending the spies was to be a symbolic acquisition of the land of Israel before the Jewish people enter. It was important that every tribe should be represented. It was important that people of leadership should be the ones to be the representatives. The idea of Latour, according to Nachmanides, is to check something out thoroughly. And he gives us an example as one who checks out something before they purchase it. As a way of saying that when God said, send the spies, the purpose from God's perspective was not the military purpose per se. It was because God wanted the Jewish people to see exactly what the story was in the land of Israel, the people, the landscape, to understand exactly what they were about to get themselves into. And before they would, and before they would actually go and conquer the land of Israel, they would have committed themselves to that mission. If I had to give a kind of analogy, it's the idea of checking someone out thoroughly to the best of your ability before you enter into an intimate relationship with them so that you know exactly what you're getting yourself into and so that before you crystallize the relationship, you've at least mentally, symbolically committed yourself to that relationship. Having said that, so then it would come out that there are, there are, as I said, two very different understandings over here of what the purpose of sending the spies were. In the way that it's presented in Dvarim by us, Moshe presents it purely as a military maneuver. In real time, there may have been much more at stake, and perhaps the military element 
may have been, or the military component, may have been secondary to the much larger component of somehow embracing, and as I said before, symbolically taking possession of the land of Israel before the actual conquest. Let us move on. Where do the spies go to? Well, when Moshe tells the story, Moshe says in Tvarim chapter 1, verse 24, he speaks about them coming to Nachal Eshkol, about spying it out, taking the fruits and bringing them back. In real time, in Bamidbar, in chapter 13, verses 21 to 24, it's true that we mention them going to Nachal Eshkol because that's the place where they took a whole cluster of grapes, and that's why they called it Nachal Eshkol. But what's also mentioned is that they went to Hebron. And in particular, what's highlighted in Hebron are the inhabitants of Hebron, four giants, Achiman, Sheshai, Talmai, Yelidei Ha'anak. Interestingly, Moshe omits that. And once again, it's very interesting that Moshe wants to highlight on the one hand, the military element, and on the other hand, he wants to talk about Nachal Eshkol as, in terms of the fruits, okay, the very special fruits, which were then brought back. Moshe doesn't highlight what eventually became the stumbling block, which is the visit to Hebron with the encounter with the giants. Now let's move on to the actual reporting of the events. And once again, we have a very significant discrepancy. In real time, when the spies come back, they report to the people, they show them the fruits of the land. They say the land, yes, the land, in fact, is flowing with milk and honey. Here are the fruits, okay? But then most of the report, and this is chapter 13, verses 28 to 33, most of the report is actually negative. And most of the port focuses on the tenaciousness, on the power of the people who are living there. And in fact, what also appears is all of a sudden a split among the spies, where Kalev, when the report is given that there were giants there, Kalev tries to quiet the people and says to them, we can do it. We can take possession of the land. But what seems to be is that the other spies counter and say there is no way that we can do it. They are too powerful. But even more than that, in the process of trying to really discourage the people, what they do is they then go back even on what they said earlier when they described the land of Israel as a land flowing with milk and honey. And on the contrary, they now describe the land of Israel as a land which eats up its inhabitants which means that the message which is being given is a very mixed message. And in fact, what I would even say is, it ultimately ends up being an extremely negative report. A negative report which has a dissenting voice. But what seems to emerge from the way it's presented is a very, very negative picture of a land which is impenetrable. And even the good of the land is somehow inverted to then have the land being described as a land which eats up its inhabitants. Note that in our parsha, Moshe completely ignores the negative elements which came up in the report. 
And Moshe now says to them, simply, the spies came back and said, the land which God is giving us is good. In fact, that line, that the land which God is giving us is good, okay, was actually said later on in Numbers chapter 14, verse 7, by Joshua in Kalev as part of their attempt to counter the fallout. And they said, the land is very, very good. But note the fact that here, Moshe emphasizes not only that the land is good, the land which God is giving us. Now, I want you to see that what seems to be over here is that Moshe, when he's telling the story, is really trying to, if you want to say it, perhaps, you know, slant it a certain way, to be able to very much highlight how here is God, who's brought the people to the threshold of the land of Israel. Here is God who's now telling them, it's waiting for you to take possession. Here it's the people who are being proactive, which is positive, sending out spies. And then the spies came back, the way Moshe presents it, with a glowing report of the land. The land, in fact, is really good. So that what it's doing is very much highlighting the goodness of God and perhaps painting the people in a much more negative light. Moshe, as I said, does not in any way bring up the debate, and I would even say the very passionate debate, vocal debate, which went on when the spies came back. Now let's get to number five on my sheet, the reaction of the people. And let's divide this up into a number of points. In Bamidbar, the reaction of the people is that in response to the report of the spies, they begin crying, they bemoan their fate, they murmur. And essentially what you have in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, the bottom line is that the people are saying, why did God take us out of Egypt to now be killed by the sword, right, and coming into the land of Israel? Let's now go back to Egypt. When Moshe reports in our parsha what happened. So Moshe said the people did not want to go up. They rebelled against God, verses 26 to 28. And interesting, Moshe, Moshe says, the people say, God, in fact, hates us in that God took us out of Egypt to destroy us. Now, again, think about this. The way that Moshe is presenting it is that initially here is God who's benevolent, who is promised you this great land, and the spies came back and told you what a wonderful land it is, and look at what you did. You completely inverted everything, okay? You, instead of seeing God as being benevolent, speak about a God who's demonic, who hates you, who took you out purposely in order to bring you to your destruction. Now, interestingly, in the course of describing how the people react, Moshe then also says the people said that Well, our brethren caused our hearts to melt when they told us about these cities that are fortified and about these people who live there who are very powerful and about all the giants. But it's very interesting that so Moshe does say to them that the spies reported about the giants, etc., etc., but he brings it up as a kind of the people who have internalized that maybe taken it right, out of context, maybe exaggerated it, okay, so that it's as if Moshe is bringing up what actually happened, but ultimately 
putting the blame on the people for having taken in that whole story of the giants and the fortified cities and how the people have now used that narrative to then come up with this idea of a God who's demonic, who hates them, who wants to destroy them. That's number one. Number two, when we look at the real story, this is chapter 14, verses 5 through 10, Moshe and Aaron seem to be very, very passive in the story. And in fact, the people who are very proactive are Joshua and Kalev. And they are the ones who then come and try to encourage the people, who try to counter the negative report of the spies unsuccessfully. And interestingly, the way they also try to do it is by saying to the people, we can do it, okay? If God wants us to, God can make it happen. God can overcome all of our enemies. But if you want the assistance of God, you need to be on the side of God. Okay, don't rebel against God. In our parsha, it's interesting that Moshe doesn't at all mention the role of Kalev in Yoshua. Moshe, in fact, highlights what he said and how he tried to encourage the people and how, in fact, he tried to encourage them based on their experiences in the desert, how God, in fact, carried them throughout their journey as a father carries his son. This is chapter 1, verse 31. So, so Moshe is, in fact, saying to the people, you claim God hates you, God loves you, God protected you throughout, okay? And Moshe then is castigating the people. How could you not believe in God through everything that you've experienced in the desert? So that what's happening over here is that Moshe is somehow on the one hand trying to highlight perhaps a role which he played and a role which he played to try to somehow neutralize the reaction of the people, okay? And to not focus on what the spies said on both sides, meaning the good spies, Joshua and Kalev, and the rest of the spies who gave such a negative report. But if anything, Moshe throughout his telling of the story tries to focus on his role and the people's role and how the people perhaps came to whatever conclusions they came and how Moshe tried to deflect that. Now let's go on to the next thing, God's decree. Now, we all know that God essentially decreed that that generation would die in the desert, a new generation would rise up that would eventually enter the land of Israel, and that narrative appears in both stories. But what's very interesting is, in the actual story in Bamidbar, there's a very interesting interchange between God and Moshe. This is chapter 14 verses 11, okay, through, I would say, uh, 27. There's a very interesting interchange where God, in effect, says to Moses, leave me alone and I'm going to wipe out the Jewish people. I will make you instead of them. I will make you into a great nation instead of them. And when Moshe, in effect, pleads the case of the Jewish people, very, very similar to what happened at the golden calf, and in the aftermath, or maybe I should say the conclusion of this dialogue between God and Moshe, is where God says at the, in verse 20, 
Salachti Kidvarecha. I have forgiven the Jewish people according to your words. Which means that God initially wanted to completely destroy the Jewish people. In the end, God accepted Moshe's prayers to not destroy them immediately. Yet nevertheless, God said, because of what the Jewish people have done, a whole generation will die in the desert. Now, interestingly, in Bamidbar, God says, with one exception, Kalev, my servant Kalev, because he was faithful to me, he will come into the land and take possession of it. Interestingly, God says nothing about Joshua. We only know about Joshua in what appears at the end of that section, where it then discusses what happened to the spies. It says that 10 spies, in fact, died immediately, which is chapter 14, verse 37. But Joshua and Kalev, this is verse 38, they remained alive. Now, from that section... We don't actually even know, will Joshua be the one to bring the Jewish people, or not even bring, will Joshua come into the land of Israel? All that we know is that Joshua and Caleb did not die immediately, in contrast to the other spies. And we know that Caleb will enter the land of Israel. Interestingly, no mention of Joshua. On the other hand, in the way that Moshe presents it, God says, Caleb will come to see the land of Israel. But even more than that, what Moshe says is that God became angry at me and said to me, you will not enter the land. In fact, Joshua, who stands before you, which is another way of saying who is your attendant, he will be the one to enable the Jewish people or to bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel. Which means that the way Moshe presents it is, that God actually became angry at him at what happened in the story of the spies. I would just like to point out that in my last podcast on Parshat Chukat, I quoted the Abarbanel, who based on this verse, in fact says the real reason why Moshe died in the desert and did not bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel was not because in the story of Merivah, Moshe hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock in chapter 20 in Numbers. But in fact, Moshe dies in the desert because of his, you could say, lack of leadership in what happened in the story of the spies. I don't know if that's necessarily the conclusion that you need to draw from what Moshe says over here. And what I would like to do now is to perhaps wrap up this podcast, to highlight what I see as the different narratives and how to relate to them. So let's begin by saying that what appears in Bamidbar is certainly what actually happened in real time. And what we have to see in Dvarim is how Moshe now tells that story, and I would even add how Moshe tells that story with an agenda, so to speak. Although Moshe's beginning the story by saying that it was the initiative of the people to send spies, I would or argue, along with many other traditional commentaries, actually did happen and was omitted in the real-time story because of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Yet nevertheless, everything else which appears is Moshe trying to present the story 
with, as I said, an agenda. And what is that agenda? Essentially, what Moshe wants to say to the people is that you, the people, and I, were both the instigators for sending the spies. We ultimately were the ones who were responsible to see that the sending of the spies would be taken in the right direction. And when it ended up becoming a disaster, ultimately, the responsibility lies with the people and with Moshe. And in my mind, that's why Moshe says that, and God became angry with me, and God said, you won't enter the land of Israel, because Moshe may very well feel that, certainly from his subjective perspective, that perhaps the reason why he's not entering the land of Israel is because of his lack of leadership in the story of the spies. Moshe does not mention God's role in initiating the proposal. Moshe does not mention the actual report of the spies and the whole discussion between the spies and Joshua and between Kalev, because Moshe doesn't want to focus on those people and on their responsibility. In fact, Moshe doesn't want the discussion to become deflected and to, in a certain sense, put the blame on the spies. Moshe wants to keep the spies out, as if to say, whatever the spies may have said, whatever Joshua may have said, on a certain level is irrelevant. What's important is that the people, together with Moshe, should have somehow overcome, in a way, the report of the spies, should have channeled it in the right direction. And this message may be an extremely important legacy that Moshe is now handing to the people. Although Moshe has a successor who is Joshua, although Moshe has set up a whole apparatus, right, of judging the people, there is a whole leadership that's been established. Ultimately, the people have to take responsibility for whatever they're going to do. And the people cannot place responsibility on the leadership. Yes, the leadership will pay the price that they need to pay for whatever mistakes they make, as Moshe did in terms of the story of the spies. But ultimately, the people are the ones who will be responsible for the success or failure of the conquest of the land of Israel and of the possession of the land of Israel. And I think this theme runs throughout the book of Dvarim. The idea of personal responsibility, personal responsibility that each one needs to take, not only for their own behavior, but for the collective behavior. And the idea that if Moshe in the first four books played a very central role in leading the people, and as we see in the book of Bamidbar, that leadership role then becomes expanded to include other people. What I would like to present is that it ultimately becomes expanded to include the whole Jewish people. As if to say to the whole Jewish people, you have leaders, and hopefully those leaders will inspire you, they will take you in all the positive directions you need to go. But when push comes to shove, you need to step up to the plate. And especially in those situations where the leadership may fail, the people need to then do that which is right. In my mind, 
that ultimately is the meaning of, of the Jewish people being Amamlechet Kohanim Vegoi Kadosh. That ultimately the fate of the Jewish people, the destiny of the Jewish people, does not depend on the leadership, but it depends on the people. And that message is perhaps the most important message for Moshe to convey to the people. It begins and it ends with you. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Schweiger. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardis from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.